0: Brilliant. Well, um, it's great to join with you in this uh, series that you're doing in Philippians. So if you have a Bible, turn again to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 1 to uh, 11. And if you're freezing cold, this is the moment to move closer to one of the heaters. That one's off, but there's, there's some spots around here if you're really feeling it. that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow, so I've called this sermon Good Relationships because really that's what Paul's talking about. And one of life's biggest struggles, as you know, is the struggle to maintain good relationships. When things go well, it's great, but when things go wrong, it can be extremely painful, crazily painful. This passage reminds me of, um, like a captain carefully steering his ship between two sets of rocks sticking up out of the, out of the ocean. If the boat hits the rock on either side, it's going to be damaged and it could sink. He's steering us to peaceful waters relationally. That's what this passage is about. And it's a very positive section of of Scripture. There are only four negative words in the whole section that we just read. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. So let's imagine those are the rocks on either side. We've got to try and steer through selfish ambition and vain conceit to the peaceful waters of good relationships as we seek to live out our Christianity. And Paul in giving us Christ's example of humility not only tells us something wonderful about Christ, but also reveals the long-term rewards of humility as opposed to the short-term gains of self-interest. And I guess that's where the rubber hits the road for us. So to get the most out of this text, we need to examine ourselves as we move through the passage. I hope you don't mind doing that. Is there someone in your life who keeps rubbing you up the wrong way? That one person that just gets under your skin, who irritates you and who aggravates you and for some reason brings out the worst in you. You're not the not the person that brings out the best in you and you can feel it in yourself. The struggle, you want to be your best, but this particular person brings out the worst in you. Is there someone that you kind of hope will fail a little bit? <laughs> Come, you know, have their comeuppance, their moment, that they, they would be humbled. Um, or do you find yourself, you know, continually focusing on getting the best for yourself or your family, the most for yourself, rather than looking for the benefits of others. These are the things that this passage deals with. So it gets right to the heart. And to find our way through these danger points, um, and in light of those challenges, Paul uh, gives us two points. I've got these are my two. It's a two-pointed sermon. There's only two points. Paul's appeal and Christ's example. Paul's appeal and Christ's example. Now, if you look at the passage, if you've got it there in your Bible or on your phone, Paul's appeal goes like this. If this, then that. If this is true of you, then do this. If this, then that. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort, he says, or relief because of his love, if there's any fellowship or sharing in the Spirit, if there's any tenderness or mercy and compassion, then make my joy complete and behaving that way. If this, then that. That's verses 1 to 4. Ask yourself, hmm, have I experienced any of this? Are you encouraged by the fact that your life is now bound up with the life of Jesus, that you're eternally secure, that the old you has died and a new you has come to life in Jesus? Have you been comforted by his wonderful love? Have you experienced the mercy of God in your own life and the forgiveness of your sins? And have you entered into all the goodness as, or at least part of the amazing goodness that God has for you? Do you know something of the fact that God loves you as a father and cares for you and wants the best for you and has your uh, interests at heart? If you've experienced any of the comforts and the tenderness and the mercy and the compassion of God, If you're aware of these things working in your life, if there's encouragement, fellowship of the Spirit, and all this, and as Paul said last week, that's a kind of rhetorical question. He's writing to these Christians, and he knows that the answer to those questions is yes. If you've experienced the grace of God in your life, if this, then that. Now make my joy complete, says Paul, by remembering all of that remembering it all. Keep it in mind so that it helps you become balanced, gracious, humble, generous, others-centered, a team player, someone who isn't just fighting for what you want in your life, in your work, in your family, in church, but someone who's fighting for the good of the whole Christian community. That's Paul's appeal. If this, then that and he urges them to keep those things in mind we so easily forget all the benefits all the privileges that we enjoy when we're upset with a, with someone for some little thing or some big thing and Paul says no 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 remember all of this all this weight of privilege that's yours in Christ remember all of that keep it in mind and it will produce three Characteristics, unity, humility, and unselfishness. So, Paul's appeal is if this is true, then let's work for unity, humility, and unselfishness as a Christian response. Unity first, verse 2 then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. So, that's a picture of unity of comradeship, of togetherness as believers. Be like-minded, he says. Think the same things. Michael Eaton, who I know Paul quoted last week, says this. It is notable that his request begins with the mind, the mentality. He asks the Christians to have the same outlook on life. In their convictions on the big things of life, they should be united. Set your mind on the same thing, he says. They are unanimous that the gospel of Christ is God's way of salvation. They all know that life is temporary, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So they ought to stand together in the knowledge that they have a common allegiance in furthering the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are to be be one in mind. Christians will often have different opinions concerning smaller matters of life, but on the bigger issues, Jesus, obedience to the Holy Spirit, life, death, sin, judgment, salvation, heaven, hell, we ought to be moving together in substantial agreement. Our Jesus-like mentality ought to be a matter of unanimity. So knowing and believing the truth is the primary basis of our unity. Paul starts with the mind. Very interesting. Christians today often appeal first to the heart and urges towards a feeling. Many of our worship songs actually like that, aren't they? Well, let's put our minds on hold and let's have this feeling of unity. Truth is secondary. We can sort out doctrine later. Maybe even we won't sort it all out until we get to heaven. That's the kind of thinking. That can give the impression, actually, that doctrine is the problem. Oh dear, here comes Paul again, insisting on this, that little aspect of his doctrine and his Beliefs. If only we could get rid of the bits that we don't like, which run against our preferences or culture or tradition or whatever, then we would all get along. It's very important to recognize Paul starts with the mind first, not, not the heart first, but with the mind first. It's important that you and I allow the Bible to speak for itself and not to try and juggle and jiggle and wriggle and wobble. Um, in play gymnastics, theological kind of gymnastics, to make it not say what it clearly does say. Being like-minded means that we agree that the Bible is the final authority, even if we need to do some work on how we interpret difficult passages and so on. But the Bible is our authority. So Paul urges us to love but he starts with the mind. I find that absolutely fascinating. He starts with the mind be of the same mind. And then in the same sentence, having the same love. So it's not like mind first, doctrine, intellect over here, big head over there, and then 30 miles, 30 kilometers down the road. Oh, and also love each other, you know, just to add that in. It's in the same sentence. Same mind, having the same love, because division and dissension can be joy killers, so Paul doesn't start with like, uh, doesn't stop rather with like-mindedness. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Well, what does it mean to have love in Christian community? It's interesting to note that while Paul is saying that we should think the same things which is, which is literally what it says in Greek we should think the same things we be of one mind he doesn't say that we should all love the same thing but rather that we should possess the same love so you can <laughs> we can think the same thing about the big truths of the gospel but you don't need to love the same things but we should have the same love that God has for us We should have that love towards one another because we do love different things. Each one of us loves a different kind of emphasis. One loves, I don't know, classical music. Another one loves, you know, rock and roll. Another one loves jazz. We love different things. We, there are stylistic differences. Some like a worship time to be a certain way or length or whatever. You don't have to love the same things, but we should, what he's saying is we should have the same love that God has for us. We should have that love for one another. And it's interesting, again, be like-minded, having the same love. So when you think of Christian community and love in the Christian community, your emphasis shouldn't be, I don't want to be overcorrected, but it shouldn't be, do I feel loved in this place? That's not what he's saying. He's putting it on you to love others. That's actually at the heart of the whole passage. So rather than assessing well I went to this church that church or maybe you're looking for a church rather than assessing Christian community by how much you feel am I being loved here am I being served here no well I'm going down the road then actually what Paul's saying is you should love others being of the same mind and having the same love towards Others, if you're still assessing a Christian community on the now, as leaders, we want people to serve. We want to serve, and we want others to serve others too. But if your if your mindset is that you're assessing on how well you're being served or how poorly you're being served or loved, then you haven't. You need this passage because you haven't really got hold of Paul's argument here in Philippians too. And so when I read this scripture, I find that I'm being challenged to love others and serve others rather than assess how loving others are being towards me. Um, Yeah, what that means is that we should be actively expressing kindness towards others. How are you doing on that? Actively supporting, not just arguing for support, but actually, in reality, supporting others or having compassion towards someone else. In fact, our priority has to be in terms of others being important, not ourselves being the important one. Your importance at various points, in order to maintain unity and harmony in Christian community, your importance needs to take one step to the side, and others' importance needs to be lifted up in your own thinking and your own mind <clears throat> which is exactly what he says next it's the third appeal of if this then that is humility and unselfishness do nothing that verse 3 out of selfish ambition <coughs> or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests but but each of you to the interests of others. Now, this should work brilliantly. If we're all looking out for each other, we actually all should be being loved, served, helped, supported, encouraged, motivated, inspired, you know, in a, in a kind of beautiful togetherness that moves us forward. But we're just not like that. Spurgeon once said, talking of preachers, some trumpets are so stuffed full of self that not even God can blow through them. Some trumpets are so stuffed full of self that God can't blow through them or won't blow through them. So this is the the spiritual discipline of putting others first. You've heard of different spiritual disciplines. How about this one? Putting others first. It's not easy to do. And uh, Paul is himself modeling it in this letter. He does talk about his, he he's grateful for their gifts to him. He comes to that later in the letter. Paul could have reminded them of what, of what the sacrifice that he had made to get this church going. You remember the story, how they preached and they were beaten and imprisoned. He could have talked about his sacrifice on their behalf. He could have made the focus himself. But all through the letter, you can see he's working for their joy. He's working for their advancement. He's working for their Benefit. He's not describing even how he's now again in prison suffering for the gospel. He's not, the focus isn't on self. It's not unreality. He does mention these things, but his focus is on them. So he's modeling it himself. Selfish ambition is not really about what gifts you have, but how you use those gifts and why. You want to use those gifts. It's a fine line, isn't it? Because gifts are really important. It's more about what you'll do to get to the front of the line. That's selfish ambition. It's it's you wanting to make sure you get to the front of the line. There's an element of kids aren't very good at this, are they? But we learn this. And by the time we're adults, it's almost impossible to discern someone's motivation kids are obvious that's mine or i want it now i'll give it back or whatever it's it's completely obvious but but adults we're ever so good at kind of covering our tracks and strategically trying to defeat someone else in order to get to the front of the queue or whatever it is in our that's what selfish ambition is to have the preeminence for yourself and paul says Don't do any, if you recognize in yourself that that's an impulse over any particular issue, Paul says, don't do it. Do nothing in that direction. Take the air out of your tires so that you can't move in that direction. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and conceit, but act humbly towards each other. And humility, conversely, the other side, doesn't mean that you're not ambitious. It means you're not selfishly and self-centeredly ambitious. So humility doesn't mean to be passive or not to use your talents or to pretend that someone who clearly isn't as gifted as you is more gifted than you. That That's not what taking the air out of your ambition and being humble is. Being humble is wanting to promote others' success and using your gifts in order to enable and release others as well. If, if humility meant hiding your talent, then, you know, we'd have no worship leaders. I mean, this guy singing here beautifully this morning, I don't know his name. Um, what, a, what a beautiful voice. I mean, you all had lovely voices. Uh, <laughs> let me not <laughs> exalt one above another. Um, but you know that's gift. You know, and and when I when I hear a drummer who can let me go for drums because we were cool today. So when I hear a drummer who can really play, who can pro, you know properly play, it helps me worship. You know, I, I, there is a way of playing where you just think, oh, I like that little paradiddle. You know, you can get distracted, but. Paradiddle, technical term, never mind. But, but you know, when I hear musicians playing brilliantly, it, it, it just enhances the, the worship. It doesn't distract me. I mean, even down to a, a fantastically played guitar solo. What is a guitar solo? A guitar solo is ripping through the thing and taking off. That's what a guitar solo is. So that's appropriate in a time of worship. So I'm not talking about becoming musically bland. As can so often happen in Christian contexts, but being humble isn't about smothering your gift, it's recognizing that you've been given a gift by God. it's not inherently yours, it's given by God that's what a gift means, and using your gifts to bless everyone for the common good, so we have a stewardship of our of our gifts for the common good. It's not about pretending someone else is better than you when they're clearly not. It's about your approach. It's about your posture. It's about your heart. Your approach is to be generous towards others. There's room for more. You can mentor someone. You can disciple them and lift you up. If you have a gift, use the gift. Get better at it. Put in the hours and trust God to open doors for you. But watch your heart. That it doesn't shift into that selfish ambition, um, and when you flourish as a result of your gifts, whether you're in business or whether you're a brilliant parent or whatever, you know, there are gifted, gifted mothers, brilliant with their kids, kind of instinctively, uh, you know, so the, the object isn't say, "Look at my child. It's, "Hey, share some of this." Share some of this. Let's learn from one another to benefit others. So Paul's appeal, that was the first point, is if this, then that. If you've experienced any of this, then behave in this way that leads to unity, humility, and unselfishness. And then secondly, he gives us Christ's example. So he makes an appeal to us, and then this is the sucker punch. I mean, this is an amazing thing. Christ's example, verse 5. In your relationships, that's what we're talking about. That's what Paul is trying to teach the church about. With one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Wow. So he goes right to the top. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul, <laughs> I mean, it's a bit, it's, he's going for it. He now illustrates this characteristic by turning our attention to Christ, our ultimate example. And in bringing... Christ before our eyes in this way, we are, ought to be anyway, deeply humbled by comparison, but also inspired to worship. Have this mindset, says Paul, be like this. You're gifted, you're talented, all of you. You've received much, every single one of us, uh, in in this room, you've got great potential. He who began a good work in you will complete it, bring it to completion. You've got a great future. Now, says Paul, get ready. Because Christ, who is God, poured himself out. Poured himself out in becoming a man. And then, as a man, once again poured himself out by becoming obedient to death on our behalf, even death on the cross. This self-emptying God-man was then vindicated. Having emptied himself from the height to the lowest point, he was then exalted to the very highest place and actually will eventually be acknowledged as having the highest place by every created being. Gordon Fee says that this section that serves as the centerpiece for our letter is in many ways the centerpiece of the entire New Testament. So let's just look at it briefly. First of all, who he was, Jesus. The example of who he was, Jesus is in very nature God. That's the claim of this passage. Everywhere in the New Testament we encounter this though. Jesus, the Son of God, existed with God as God before he was born into the world. So whether it's in John's Gospel where we're told, you know it well, in the beginning was Jesus the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus. Or the book of Hebrews where it says that Jesus is the radiance of, of his glory that that should inspire you to write a worship song Jesus is the radiance of God the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature who upholds all things by the word of his power Jesus is the great I am Jesus is Yahweh Jesus is Emmanuel God with us Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Michael Eaton again says the Greek word for very nature has been intensely studied by New Testament scholars. It means what something really is inside and out. He is in very nature God. He is God. In Philippians 2, six, the first bit of the verse, it carries both the idea of what something is in the depths of its being, and it carries the idea of the outward manifestation of what is inwardly true. Athanasius, the third century scholar, wrote, There is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus was when he appeared as a man. He is God. That's who he is. What he did, he emptied himself, as I read already, all the way to the cross. He didn't resist the call to become our sacrifice, God becoming man, an amazing thing. He didn't say, uh, I, I'm God, you know, the son. I'm not going to become a man. That He emptied himself. Paul says he made himself, by comparison, nothing. It's shocking. Absolutely shocking. Verse 7, he emptied himself, made himself nothing in Greek taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And the likeness there is neither a fiction. It wasn't God pretending to be a man. Jesus wasn't a pretend man. he I mean, this is... Un, are you getting it? It's difficult to... He, he was a real... He became a real man. All the eternal hugeness, immensity of God kind of restricted and contained as a man he wasn't a pretend man he was a real man so it's not a fiction nor is it a renunciation of his deity as though being made in likeness as a, he was a he was a man who somehow attained a higher level of spirituality who became a master who became a krishna or a buddha or or a, a whatever no He was God. So this isn't a pretend man. Neither is it a man who was kind of quite like God or who had attained a higher level of spirituality than any other man before and after. No, Jesus was truly God and he was truly man. The word became flesh, says John, and made his dwelling among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Note, we beheld His glory, a glory that emanates from His own being. Not the glory of God upon Him like they saw with Moses. Jesus has His own glory. He is glorious in and of Himself. He is God. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. Now, what's Paul doing? Let's just remind ourselves, because it's like when he talks about marriage, and then he, it's just like glorious revelation about Christ. He's talking about how to have good relationships in Christian community. So he makes his appeal. If this, then that. Unity, humility. And he says, remember Christ's example. He was God, and yet he emptied himself. Isn't that staggering? By becoming, first in becoming a man, then by going to the cross. That's unbelievable. That's unthinkable. No, no wonder at a human level people struggle to believe this could possibly be the Messiah or the Son of God. Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. How is it possible that Jesus could be the solution, could be the answer, could be the Savior? Christian humility... And a Christian mindset can obviously be nurtured by remembering the example that Paul brings before us today in this passage. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him, you have been made complete. He was fully God, and yet he emptied himself. And our completion and our fullness comes to us because he emptied himself. We will never be forsaken. I will never forsake you. Why will we never be forsaken? Because he was forsaken on the cross. Because he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even in that moment on the cross, that what's called the cry of dereliction, the this unthinkable moment, When God the Father turned away from the Son, Christ was left utterly alone, hanging on the cross, suffering for our sins in our place. He was utterly forsaken, punished with a punishment that, again, we cannot conceive taking upon himself the full weight of the punishment of God for our sin, and we, by faith and not by works, by looking to him and trusting him, we get never to be forsaken. We get his righteousness. We get acceptance. We get forgiveness. Look at the example, says Paul. Look at the trust, says Paul. He who had the highest position takes the lowest place. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He took the lowest place and the deepest suffering in order to release you from your chains. Chains that you welcomed. Chains that you took upon yourself, your bondage, your sin, your sinfulness to raise you up together with him. Wow, that's what Christ has done for us. When Christ died on the cross, he was taking your punishment and relieving you from the eternal consequences of your sins. Amazing. He died, but he didn't stay dead, of course. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember, he's teaching you about your relationships with other people See how God rewarded Christ's obedience. Christ humbled himself, and he was therefore exalted. Remember Jesus, says Paul. It's not that God um, doesn't want to exalt you, or give you influence, or that recognition of your work is wrong. It's not that false humility thing. Jesus is rewarded for his amazing work. And you and I, believers, will be rewarded for the work that we've done. There are rewards waiting for you. And in fact, we're told, don't work for that which perishes, work for that which never perishes. But have this mindset in you that was in Christ. He went to the low, he trusted and went to the lowest place. And he now has the highest place. His name is the name above every other name, the name of all the greats that could be named. His name is higher. And one day on that day of vindication, every knee will bow, as we read, every created being, believer, non-believer, angel, demon, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. We see amazing humility in Jesus God becomes a man, empties himself again, submitting to a wonky trial, corruption, persecution, flogging death on our behalf, an amazing Savior, and exalted to give us an amazing future. And that reality is, of course, acknowledged by us now it's not acknowledged by the world. And it, it may be that there are a few people that will acknowledge who you are and, and all that you are now, and even all that you do now. You may not get thanked in the way that you expect to be thanked, or you may want to give up. But don't become weary. Don't grow weary, because your reward is then, not now. Our tendency is so short term. We're just looking for short term gains all the time. Like putting a picture on Instagram and hoping you'll get a few likes at least within the first hour. And then over a few days, oh, I only got 12 likes. We're so short term in the kind of we do something and we look for a reward now, but your crown is coming then. What trust Jesus had to exercise? when he went through to the cross. We read it now and we say, oh, well, of course. I remember in the sixth form having a conversation in the sixth form common room with someone who said, oh, well, the cross was easy for Jesus. I wasn't a believer at the time either because he knew he was going to be raised. So where's the problem? But if we know even now how difficult it is to humble ourselves, to let our own self-importance take a, a sidestep and then go through the short-term trust that actually I'm doing this for your for you, Lord, and for the benefit of someone else, whether or not I get a short-term reward. If that dynamic, you understand what I'm saying, if that dynamic is difficult for us, what what was it for Christ to go through this? And yet, that's the example that Paul puts to us. He's urging us, to apply that to ourselves. Have this mindset in you, says Paul. It's counterintuitive. It's kind of risky. Humbling yourself could put you at a disadvantage. Good, couldn't it? That's just the reality. And learning humility is not a vague, abstract principle. It's not something you can do alone. Have you noticed how well you get on with the world when you're just on your own? <laughs> then you know the others come into the picture and that's what that's what the niv says the others the definite article real people in the room but look out not only for your own interest but for the interest of the others it's not a concept it's not just you heard it taught and then you feel right okay each of you look to the interests of The others. That means using your gifts, strengths, resources, energy for others. Who are the others for you that you could help succeed? So we started with a little bit of self examination. Let me just ask you a few questions to close. Examine yourself in light of this appeal of Paul, if this, then that. In light of the example of Christ, are you driven? Driven. By self interest. Do you ever kind of put the brakes on when you realize that you're actually motivated by self here and take the air out of your tires? Do you struggle with jealousy, envy, impatience? You know, all those can be symptoms of self being more important than serving others. Is the cause of your, let's call it, unsettledness? in relationships, always the other person or the other people? Are, th- is it, are they always the problem? If someone's talking to you about the latest kind of thing that's going on in your life, is it always the others? Or is there a point where you reflect yourself and say, hey, maybe I, I have to do this all the time. Maybe I did say that too strongly or I did, okay, maybe I... Why is it so difficult for us to just say, "Yeah, maybe I did that. Maybe that was not good." Perhaps it's because we don't have this example of Christ before us. Maybe it's not kind of deeply ingrained in us. Do you do you struggle to admit that you're wrong? No, of course not. Do you struggle to say sorry? No, of course you don't. Hey, no, no front front row talking with my wife there, Paul. That was But are you always right? Do you have to be right? Is it like life and death to you? Well, if any of those questions resonate with you, can I urge you this week, do it this week. Maybe some of you got a bit of time off for. Take Philippians chapter 2, 1 to 11. You've had two weeks on it now. And make it an outline for your prayers. Why don't you do it? Just use it as an outline for your own personal prayer and maybe a benchmark against which you can measure your progress. It's not perfection that we're going for, but it is a, have this mindset in you. Think this way, the way that Jesus thought. Think that way. It requires trust. We've got Jesus as our example. We've got the Holy Spirit helping us. We've got the tenderness and the mercy of the love of God working in us. So let's not just be hearers of the word. Amen. Let's be doers of it. And uh, for sure, we will see a community filled with hope. We'll see a community filled with examples of unnecessary uh, acts of love and, and grace and kindness towards one another. How wonderful would that be? It'd be like a Christian community. It's fun. We get to have a go at this. If this is true of you, if all these benefits are yours, then have this mindset in you. One heart and mind focused on the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's just pray before we break bread. Father, we thank you for your word. You've not left us um just Struggling in the dark. You've not left us only going by our feelings and our impressions, but you instruct us for our good. And I pray this morning that you would help make this word true and real in our lives. Because of your amazing example of sacrifice, we want, as we're going to do now, Lord, we want to take it in. We want to eat this. Example. We want to, we want to absorb who you are and what you've done in our lives. We want it to become part of us. And we thank you for your correction. We thank you for your word. We pray, I pray, Lord, against any sense of condemnation of anyone here. This isn't a word to condemn, but a word to fortify us and strengthen us so that we might be more like you for your praise and your glory. Amen. Amen.